Do any of you happen to have a, a favorite timepiece that you like to wear? Any of you have a favorite timepiece? In a 1985, a Welsh gentleman from Newport, he bought an Omega Pilot's watch at an auction. He liked the look of it and the fact that it dated back to 1920. It was his favorite timepiece. Well, when he purchased the watch, it came with a repair receipt. Evidently, this timepiece had some work done on it in 1933. Well, in 2001, the TV program, The Antiques Roadshow, remember that show? It came to this man's hometown. So this Welsh man brought his watch to get assessed. And to his amazement, based on its age, the watch was valued for over, over 2,000 pounds. The man was thrilled. However, that wasn't the biggest surprise. You see, the repair receipt listed the name of the original owner of that watch. And you know what name was on the receipt? T.E. Shaw. Do you happen to know who that is? That's the pseudonym for Lawrence of Arabia. Yes, Lawrence of Arabia was a real person, not just the title of a movie, okay? So you know what that meant? It meant the value and worth of that timepiece was actually 20 to 30 times more valuable than the owner initially thought. You know, what, what often amazes me about stories like these is how these people so frequently have no idea that what they possess is of extreme value and worth. I mean, th think about this guy in this watch, for example. Get a little of this. For over 15 years, this Welsh chap wore a timepiece that originally belonged to and was worn by Lawrence of Arabia. And he had no idea. We could put, say it this way. During those 15 years, he failed to grasp the true value and worth of what it is he had. Indeed, you know what that man needed and what the, the TV show revealed? What that man needed, please hear me, was to be shown, that man needed to be shown that what he had was of extreme value and worth. Well, faith, in many ways, that's been the burden of the author of Hebrews. As we've mentioned before, the author of Hebrews is writing to Christians, primarily Jewish Christians, who are suffering. They're experiencing all sorts of trials and difficulties. And many of these Christians, these Jewish Christians, were being persecuted for their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know what that meant? That meant they had a temptation, a strong temptation. They were tempted to turn back on their commitment to Christ. So you know what the author of Hebrews does? As we've seen over these last several months, he sets out, the author, the, the preacher we could see of Hebrews, he sets out to show them, the original readers, and us today, how great a treasure we possess 
in Jesus Christ as our great high priest. As I've stated before, the the preacher of Hebrews states the main point of his sermon in chapter 8, verse 1. And aren't we thankful that he gives us his main point, right? And do you remember what that was? I have it up here on the screen. In chapter 8, verse 1, he says this. Now the point in what we are saying is this. What's the point? He says, we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Faith, this precious truth that Christians have a great high priest in Jesus Christ, it serves as the theological foundation for the main purpose of this book. And what's the main purpose of the book of Hebrews? It's that Christians would persevere. They remain strong in their faith. They would not turn back or fall away from their commitment to Christ. You know, I think one of the reasons why we love shows like the Antique Roadshow is because deep down I think we'd all love it if we were to discover that there's some item we possess, some item in our home, there's something that we actually possess that is as valuable as that watch, right? Oh, if only that were the case. Well, friend, the author of Hebrews is saying that is the case. He says, Christian, please hear me. Far better than a timepiece worn by Lawrence of Arabia, Christian, in Jesus Christ, you have a treasure of far greater worth. As as the preacher is going to make clear here in our text this morning, chapter 5, verses 1 through 10, the author is going to argue this, and that is, Jesus is the high priest you need. Jesus is the high priest you need. This, I want to suggest, is the main point of our text this morning, Hebrews chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. You see, sadly, like the guy at that Antiques Roadshow, many Christians often fail to understand what they have in Jesus Christ as their high priest. So here in chapter 5, verses 1 through 10, the preacher provides three powerful reasons why Jesus is the high priest you need, I need, the original readers need. He wants us to understand the priesthood of Christ so that our capacity to know Christ and to be satisfied in Christ and to persevere in the midst of difficulty would increase. In fact, if you'll recall, he began this argument to prove why Jesus is the high priest you need back at the end of chapter 4, didn't he? Do you remember what we learned last week, week 2 here in this facility? Last week we were comforted with this truth, and that is, as your high priest, Jesus can help you in your time of need. Do you remember this? This is the point of chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. And, and you recall... What kind of help does Jesus provide? What kind of help does he give for those of us in need? Do you remember? Look at verse 16 of chapter 4. It tells us, that verse says that Jesus gives mercy and grace. Indeed, this passage invites us to boldly approach the throne of grace so that we could receive grace in our time of need, so that we can receive mercy in our moments of need. 
And as we talked about last week, Christian, you, you know what your greatest need is in each and every situation. You know what your greatest need is when you're suffering some kind of physical pain because of a chronic illness. You know what your greatest need is when you're dealing with a disappointing spouse. You know what your greatest need is when you're caring for an elderly parent. Your greatest need, Christian, please hear me, in that hardship, in that difficulty, your greatest need is not to sin, but to instead please and honor Jesus. That's your greatest need. And the, the book of Hebrews, it almost brings tears to my eyes, offers us all the grace and help you need to do just that. Why? Because Jesus is our great high priest. Amen? So how did it go for you this week? Did you have moments of need? I sure did. I found myself frequently last week. My wife and I were talking. This week seems like forever. I found myself in hard situations, and God in his kindness brought this passage to mind. So you know what I did? I cried out to him. I said, Lord, help me in this moment. I want to sin. Help me to honor and please you. Lord, help me. And he was faithful. But you know what? There were other times I didn't do that. In fact, there's probably more times when I experienced a hardship this week. And instead of crying out to my Savior, to my great high priest to help him with any need, you know what I did in response? I sinned. God is so good because in the wake of my sin, he, he reminded me, Aaron, you still need to go to Jesus because you can receive mercy for the forgiveness of sin. God in his kindness reminded me, though I wanted to excuse my sinful responses away, God reminded me, Aaron, you're not a victim of your circumstances. I stand above it all, Aaron. I stand above everything. I'm the sovereign God of the universe. Not one hair moves on a person's head without me ordaining it. I stand above it, Aaron. You are not the victim of your circumstances. You are culpable for your actions, Aaron Wojnicki. But Jesus stands ready to forgive, him, forgive you if you confess your sins to him. Again, this is how great a treasure we have in Jesus Christ. He gives us the grace. He promises to give us the grace in our moments of need. And when we sin and when we fall short, He freely forgives us. Amen. How great is our God? How did you do? How was your week? Did you boldly ask for grace in your time of need? When you sinned, did you go to him? Not making excuses, not saying I'm a victim of my circumstances, not what, and said, and said I'm culpable, I own it, and ask for his forgiveness? Faith, I sure hope so. We have a great high priest who can help us in our time of need. Now, here's the million-dollar question. You know what the million-dollar question is? What exactly is a high priest? <laughs> right? 
I mean, what does a high priest do? Notice, up until this point, the author has not told us, has he? He's just said, Jesus is our great high priest. Jesus is our great high priest. So what is our great high priest? Well, now starting in chapter 5, the author of Hebrews answers that question for us. And again, what I want to suggest to you this morning is that Jesus is the high priest you need. He's sufficient. And he is far more valuable than anything this world can give us. If, if the end of chapter 4 wasn't enough to prove that. So if you haven't already, please turn within your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 5. That's page 103 in that paperback Bible. We, we provided Bibles out there. Thanks to Pete and Jenny for, and all who were greeting and at the welcome table. It's page 103. Follow along in your copy of God's Word as I read Hebrews chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. So this is right on the heels of the author calling us to boldly approach the throne of grace so that we might receive mercy and grace in our time of need. And then he says this. Verse 1. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. And what is he to do? To offer gifts and sacrifices for what? What's that word? Sins. Verse 2. He, the high priest, can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he's obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for those of the people. So notice, the, sacri- the, the, the high priest serves as an in-between, God and man. He represents the people to God. And his primary role is to offer sacrifices to atone for sins. But notice what verse 3 says there. The high priest, what does he have of his own? Sins. He needs to make atonement for his. Verse 4, and referring to the office of high priest, and no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So notice, in verse 1, when it says, for every high priest is chosen from among men, you know who's doing the choosing? Who? God. So this is, this is a, in, in four verses, the author just gives a brief summary that the most important aspects that we need to first understand in regards to what a high priest is. And now look at verse 5. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, again, referring to Jesus' humanity, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Now just notice for a second, Loud cries and tears. Does it appear as if Jesus suffered? Does it look like he had difficulty? 
Yes. And he made these prayers and he was heard because of his reverence. Verse 8, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And all God's people said, Amen and amen. This is God's good, good word. Uh, back when I was in uh, Bible college many, many moons ago, it was popular, it was kind of popular at that time for Christians to talk about in, in Christian circles uh, their life verse. You know what I'm talking about? People say, hey, so you know, what's your life verse? Do you have a life verse? And people say, oh yeah, you know, my life verse is Jeremiah 29.11 or my life verse is uh, you know, Philippians 4.6 or my life verse is John 3.16. Well, I need to confess to you, I've always struggled with figuring out what would be my life verse. You know, I, which one do you pick from, right? There's, there's, there's so many. Well, then one bright fall day, I found my verse. You know what verse I chose? Hebrews 5.4. And no one takes this honor for himself when called by God, just as Aaron was. In fact, for fun, when I would email my Bible college buddies and my seminar buddies, I would often add this verse at the end of emails. <laughs> Sincerely, Aaron, and no one takes this honor on himself, but only when called by God, just as there's one. Now, obviously, obviously, this verse does not apply to all Aaron's, just the Aaron in the Old Testament. And who was that Aaron? Who was the Aaron of the Old Testament? Well, what does verses 1 through 3 state? Aaron was, we can definitely infer from this, and we know from other passages, Aaron was Israel's first high priest. And notice what we learn about the office of high priest in verses 1 through 4. According to verse 1, why was a high priest needed? Look at the very end of the verse. He was needed because of what? Sin. He was needed because of sin. This is humanity's great problem. We have sinned against our God. We need atonement. Listen, if men are not sinners separated from a holy God, then there is no need for priests. But we are sinners separated from a holy God, and we are under his just wrath. So God instituted the office of high priest. These were men, as these verses make clear, chosen by who? God, it wasn't... It wasn't an electoral college. There wasn't a democratic process. God chose these men to offer sacrifices on behalf of the people. They represented the people to God. And as we see in Leviticus and in Numbers, there is shedding of blood, animal sacrifices as a substitute for the sinner. And God would look upon these sacrifices, the shedding of blood of these animals, and turn his anger away from the people's sins. You notice what else we learn about the office of high priest 
Notice very carefully that built into this priestly system were some inadequacies. For what does verse 3 state? The high priest was himself a what? A sinner and had to offer sacrifices for his own sins as well as the sins of the people. So you know what this means? It means a lot of things. First, it means when it talks about there in verse Verse 2, that he can be sympathetic and deal genuinely or gently with people. Because the priest himself was a sinner, it means his sympathy would be imperfect. And his presence in the holy place with God would be limited. But it also meant that he would have to die and be replaced. He could never guarantee an ongoing presence with God to intervene for the people. Indeed, as we're going to see, all the inadequacies of the old priesthood are going to be clear as we move our way forward through the book of Hebrews. But for now, the author of Hebrews wants us to know that the high priest was a man appointed by God to make sacrifices to atone for the sins of the people. Now, here in verse 5, the author transitions to talk about Jesus and why he is the high priest you need. And as I mentioned, the author cites three important reasons why Jesus is the high priest you need. And the first is this, and that is because Jesus accepted his divine appointment. Notice what we see there in verse 5. I'm going to actually go back up to verse 4. So this, this, this office of high priest, it's, it's an honorable office. Because notice what verse 4 says, And no one takes this honor for himself, but only have been called by God, just as Aaron was. And we all say, Amen. Yes, go Aaron. Uh, verse 5, So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. We'll talk about that in a moment. And as he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So notice, just as we see here that Aaron was appointed, so too Jesus. I, growing up, I played Little League Baseball. And at the end of every Little League season, all the coaches would gather together and the coaches would then select an all-star team. This was supposed to be, supposed to be, all the best players in the league, they were going to assemble an all-star team. And did you know, maybe you're not aware of this, but you know, there is always one type of player who almost always makes the all-star team without fail. One type of player. You know who that player is? The coach's son. The coach's son. Isn't that true that fathers are fond of appointing their sons into important roles? Often, when their sons aren't qualified? Notice, like all high priests, Jesus was appointed by God. However, unlike Aaron, God appointed his son. Notice the, the preacher cites Psalm 2-7 to prove his point. This is the second time the author has used this quotation, Psalm 2-7. And here's what I want you to know. Unlike most coaches, son, 
Jesus is qualified to fulfill this role. Because as we're about to see, it's a role that no other priest has had previously. Faith, Jesus did not exalt himself to be high priest or to seek his own glory in any way. No, the Father sovereignly appointed the Son, and the Son obediently accepted the role. For as we're about to see, the role that the Father had for Jesus was not only to be our high priest, but also to be the ultimate sacrifice for our sins. Indeed, Jesus has been appointed as a priest king. This is what the reference to Melchizedek is getting at. See it there in verse 6? Now, what we first read of Melchizedek in Genesis 14, in that passage, he's described as the king of Salem and a priest of the Most High God. So he was both a priest and a king. Now, the book of Hebrews is going to elaborate in great detail on Melchizedek a few chapters later. But for now, what you need to know is that this citation of Psalm 110.4 is telling us two important features about Jesus' role as high priest. The first is, Jesus is a priest king. And second, because it's in the order of Melchizedek, Jesus' priesthood is without ending or beginning. Okay, that's what we just know now. In a few chapters, we're going to spend a lot of time. The author's going to give a lot of attention to that. So the first thing, the reason why Jesus is the high priest you need is because he was appointed and he accepted this role. He accepted this role as God's son. Well, then second, he learned obedience through suffering. He learned obedience through suffering. We need a perfect, obedient, righteous high priest to help us be perfect, obedient, and righteous. And Jesus accomplished that. Look at what we see there in verses 7 and 8. In the days of his flesh, referring to all of his humanity, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. Was Jesus emotionless? No. He felt deeply he became like us in every respect, right? With loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. You know what we often don't do in our suffering? Be it Difficulty at work, physical illness, difficulty in a marriage, difficulty with parents, difficulty with children. You know what we often don't do in our suffering? Revere God. We often don't make it our aim to please God. We instead most often make it our aim to find relief from our suffering. But I want you to notice that's not what Jesus did. Notice what we look, learn there in verse 7. In the days of his flesh, referring to the incarnation, when the eternal Son of God took on human flesh, in his flesh, in the days of his flesh, he prayed. As we learned back in Hebrews 2.17, Jesus was made like us in every respect. Jesus is God incarnate, fully God, fully man, 
one person and two natures. So in his humanity, here's the question, what did Jesus pray? What did Jesus agonize over? Was it deliverance from physical death? Was that the the main aim of his praying in the days of his flesh? That he just didn't want to die? They wanted to get out of this suffering? Was that, was that his main thrust? I don't think so. And you know why? Because at the end of verse 7, it says that Jesus was what? What does it say? He was heard. You know what that means? It means God gave Jesus what he asked for. And what did Jesus ask for? I believe verse 8 answers the question for us. Jesus was praying for obedience. In other words, verse 8 describes the effect of that answered prayer. Friend, please hear me. Jesus knew that there was a death worse than death. Physical death is bad enough. And we know from the Garden of Gethsemane that Jesus desired that if there would be another way, than to die on the cross. But what did he say? But not my will, but what? Your will be done. Listen to me. Far more than dying on the cross was the sin of unbelief and disobedience. That was the great and terrible threat. So Jesus prayed all his life against disobeying and sinning against his Father. Jesus was heard by his father. And instead of craving, giving into the craving of sin, he learned obedience from what he suffered. His prayers were, God, I want to do your, in his humanity, in his humanity. Jesus was praying, Lord, I want to obey you. Help me obey you. What are your prayers like? Do they consist primarily of relief from hardships? Not that there's anything wrong that we we pray for healing, we pray for good circumstances. Surely we do. But is that what they consist primarily of? Or like Jesus, do you agonize and cry out to God that you will revere and obey him in the midst of your hardship, in the midst of your difficult, dealing with your difficult boss or your marriage or your kids or Whatever it might be, your pain. I mean, what do you pray for when you're in a conflict with your spouse? (laughs) Can you imagine this? The next time you're in an argument with your spouse, what if you prayed, God, help me not to sin, but to honor and please you? This is a really hard conversation. We're not seeing eye to eye. God, help me. I want, help me to obey you and to please you. What do you pray when things don't go your way? Is it, God, help me honor and please you right now? You see, again, this is why Jesus is the high priest you need. Jesus did everything you and I have failed to do as sinners. He revered God when in anguish. He made it his aim, his heart's desire, to please his Father in the midst of suffering. Indeed, what does verse 8 state? Jesus learned obedience through suffering. Now, to be sure, 
This does not mean that Jesus moved from being disobedient to obedient. Rather, it means this. Jesus moved from being untested to being tested and proven. It was easy to obey my dad when he gave me everything I wanted. When everything was going my way. It's easy to obey in sunshine and laughter and lollipops. Jesus moved from obeying without any suffering to obeying through unspeakable suffering. In other words, suffering was the vehicle by which Jesus' trust of God was enlarged so that he would not shrink back from the cross. As N.T. scholar Tom Wright has written, he says, when suffering strikes, human beings are inclined to do whatever it takes to avoid it, to find another path where there is joy and refreshment. Jesus, however, learned how to trust God and to do his will in the midst of his suffering. His first aim was not his own pleasure and comfort, but the will of God. You know, we say we believe God is in control of everything. We, we believe that, in, oh, and we talk with big words. But do we believe it when he allows, when he gives us the bread of affliction and the water of adversity? Do we believe he's sovereign then? Because if we did, we would make it our aim, and oh, God, you stand above this, you've allowed this, Help me to obey and honor you and to revere you and to please you in this moment. And friend, here's the good news of this passage. Jesus, the perfect obedient one, he offers to give you grace and to help you obey in the midst of suffering. Because he revered God in his humanity, he can help you revere God in the midst of your trial. Because he was perfectly obedient, he can help you be obedient in the midst of your suffering. And notice how, notice how different this is from every other high priest. Uh, there's a Puritan pastor named William Bridge, and he, they put together a short little book. It's a, really, it's a great book on some messages he preached uh, on the priestly work of Christ, and it's called Comfort and Holiness from Christ's Priestly Work. And speaking of every other high priest, Bridge writes this. He says, speaking of, of the errands and stuff, Though he made atonement for the sins of the people, he also sometimes led the people into the sin. Concerning the golden calf, it is said that Aaron, the great high priest, made the people naked. Not the greatest moment for us Aaron's. But it's true. They not only sinned themselves, but sometimes they led people into sin. And then he goes on. But the Lord Jesus Christ, our great high priest, made atonement for sin and never leads us into sin. He is so far from making us naked that he covers us with his righteousness that our nakedness may not appear. Here is a glorious high priest. Amen? Amen. Now consider the third and arguably most important reason why Jesus is the high priest you need. And that is because he gives eternal salvation. Look at verses 9 and 10. Being made perfect, 
he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. He is the source. He gives eternal life to all who obey him. And what's the command that God, that Jesus Christ gives? Look at the Gospels. I think of Mark chapter 1. The very first words we hear recorded by Jesus are, repent and believe in the Gospel. I think of what Jesus says in John 6. He says, this is the work of God, that you believe in whom he has sent. You obey Jesus by trusting in him, by putting your faith in him. That is, you trust that his perfect, sinless life, his sacrificial death on the cross and victorious resurrection from the dead was sufficient to save you from the wrath of God you are owed for your sin. Friend, have you done that? Do you have eternal salvation? If not, what are you waiting for? Let today be the day of salvation where you turn from trusting in your own righteousness, your own good deeds. You give up on trying to make atonement for your sin and instead trust the sacrifice of Jesus that his was sufficient to atone for your sin and to make you right with God. And for those of you who do have eternal life, consider what a precious gift you have in Jesus. What a precious gift you have in Jesus. A high priest who stands ready to help you in your time of need. Let's pray.